You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. Isaiah 65, beginning at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I also, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives only a few days or an old person who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred and the one who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or give birth to children for disaster. For they are the descendants of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer them. I'm going to stop and read that line again because somebody missed a chance to act like they were Pentecostal. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will listen. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm. On all my holy mountain, says the Lord. How are you looking forward to that? How do you want to move forward to that? There are some challenges when we read the Bible, especially when we read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. One of the challenges is how can such an ancient foreign text mean anything for my life? See, the problem is there are at least two risks when we read the Bible. And one is to dismiss it as irrelevant. And the other one is to try and force it into the shape of something useful. Let me say that again. There are two risks when we read the Bible. They're not the only two, but two of many risks. And they are, number one, to dismiss it as irrelevant because it was written two to 3,000 years ago, 10,000 miles away. Or we try to force it into a shape that is useful for our lives. I suggest that both of them are deeply problematic. We're not supposed to make scripture submit to our needs. Our goal in approaching the text is to honor what it is while at the same time listening for what the Spirit says it can be to us. 
What can this text be to us this morning? What does the Spirit want to speak to us through this text this morning? Whatever the Spirit wants to say. How can a man get up? How can a woman get up and speak to hundreds of people, all different walks of life, all different education, all different economics, all sorts of diversity in the room? Thank God for that, by the way. Come on. Thank God for that, by the way. All sorts of diversity in the room. Grumpy Democrats and grumpy Republicans, all in the same room. Had a bad week. Everybody had a bad week. Y'all know I can say that because I've been here a minute. Come on. And here we sit and a preacher has the audacity to think he could say something that everybody's going to go, oh yeah, that's great. It's the foolishness of preaching. That's what the Bible calls it. Any self-important preacher's got a problem because scripturally this is foolishness what I'm doing. Who am I to think that I could read a passage written 3,000 years ago and make sense of it for every single person in the room? I can't do it. But I know someone who sent forth his spirit into the earth who searches the heart and mind of God and knows all things, and he manages like Jesus on the side of the mountain to take this bread and break it up. And he's got something for you, and he's got something for you, and he's got something for... He's got leftovers in the house this morning. He's going to feed everybody in this space. But it's not going to be because we have massaged the text and truncated the text to fulfill an agenda we brought to the text. This is exciting news here. God is speaking. Whatever God speaks, it's exciting. And God sometimes says harsh things. News flash. All the young folks say he does violence with his language. Yes, he does. God will hurt your feelings. Anybody been there? Come on, I'll wait for a witness on that one. God is not that concerned about your feelings. He's more concerned about our Christ-likeness. This one's a fun one to preach. For behold, take a look, pay attention. I create new heavens and new earth. Everybody shout new. Oh man, new. I like new. I like new. I like the sound of that. But here's the thing. How we hear the text is shaped by what we bring to the text. I grew up in churches. I, I mentioned earlier, my dad was the pastor here for 37 years, and I grew up under the pew, you know, sleeping. I watch night. They all remember watch night service, right? When you had to bring it in and midnight you were in church. Well, I was there in my pajamas under the pew, right? And then back in the day, we would talk about the second coming and the rapture, and you better get right or you're going to get left, and you better be prepared. And, you know, if you're sinning, we would get saved every Sunday night because we were convinced we weren't living for Jesus. And, um, you know, when, when they would preach about the coming of the Lord when you're 15, there are at least two things that vex your soul. Yes, you can be 15 and have a vexed soul. Number one, I haven't got my driver's license yet. Jesus, you can't come back. But more importantly, I have not gotten married yet. And if I'm going to live holy, you better hang on at least five years. Because there's some things that have to get done before... The the time has not been fulfilled. Don't come back just yet. And then you see all the married folks like, even so, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) All the single folks like, no, 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 no. We're good, we're good. 
It's what you bring to the text, right? It's what you bring to the text. And here's the thing. If you're poor, if you're oppressed, if you're living on the margins, if you're living in exile, and God says, I've got some new stuff for you, you're like, amen. If you've been beat down, knocked down, forgotten and looked over, God says, I'm shifting things. We got an amen ready in our mouth when God says that. You see, and that's a valid response to the word of the Lord. But then there are those of us that just love change. There are those of us that live under the tyranny of the novel. In other words, we've got to be on to the next best thing. We live in the fear of missing out. We like change for the sake of change. It hasn't worn out, but I'm buying a new one. Hello. He hasn't worn out, but I'm getting a new one. You know what I'm talking about. And see, for those people, newness is an idol. And so before we go further into the text this morning, I'm just going to invite you graciously, check yourself. Do you want new for the sake of new, or do you need new because what is will not suffice? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of my favorite theologians and thinkers and pastors, he wrote a book called Life Together. And in this book, he contrasted two kinds of community, the spiritual community and the emotional community community. And he said the emotional community was pious, sort of in a moralistic sense, not in a good sense. It was pious, but it refused to take responsibility for its neighbors. In other words, this is a community that is, is, is very much present to what God might want to do, but for itself, not for the sake of others. And before we step further into the idea that God is doing something new, let's remember that God is always doing for the other. And we celebrate it not just for us, but for the other. This is not texts that should indulge our lusts. Because you know, lust is not just about sex, right? It's inordinate desire. It's a desire for a thing apart from process. So we need an ear to hear, as it says in the book of Revelation, we need an ear to hear what the Spirit says to Salem this morning. What does he say? In verse 17, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And that former things is referencing what is said in verse 16. If you look up at verse 16, it says at the end there, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. That word troubles is what the text is talking about when it says things. Things is a bit vague. You know, give me the thing. What is the thing? In this case, it's referring to the troubles. It's the Hebrew word tzara, T-Z-A-R-A-H, tzara, and it means straits, distress, confinement. It indicates Inner turmoil. Has anybody felt inner turmoil in the last two weeks? Inner turmoil. It defines a quality of time in particular 
when Judah suffered her most severe punishment for violating her covenant with God. The troubles were the exile years, the time when Israel was dragged off out of the land of promise into a pagan empire to serve in subjection. It's a word that conveys anguish, pain, terror, all of which as a consequence of bad decisions. Is anybody besides Pastor Mark that's made a few bad decisions and felt the pain for it on the other side, right? So right now, we're bringing the text home. We're bringing the text to 7 Delavan Avenue. Yes, this was a text that was delivered to exiles and oppressed people who were living in the troubles. They were living in the overflow of their bad decisions. But I'm sitting with brothers and sisters who, like me, have made some bad decisions. And we felt the overflow of that in our lives sometimes. It could be something as relatively benign as a credit card statement that comes in the mail or in the email. Hello. Bad decisions, and you felt the anguish when you looked at that thing, didn't you? Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's a conversation. Hello? You ever have a conversation with someone, and that thing was harder to pay off than the credit card bill? You feel the anguish of that. You feel the terror. You feel with all this negative expectation of what is going to be coming into my life in the future because of what I've done in the past. Can I say that again? We live with fear and dread in anticipation of what will come into our lives in the future because of what we have done in our past. You see, the troubles can end, but their history lingers with us. What does God say about these former things? They're not going to be remembered. Friends, I turned 50 this year. 50. So here's what I can say. I'm well acquainted with involuntary forgetfulness. I know the feeling of standing in front of a cabinet wondering, why did I come to this cabinet? But there's a difference between involuntary forgetfulness and voluntary forgetfulness. If you want to remember something, try to forget it. You write that one down. If you want to remember something, try to forget it. I'm reminded of this sort of transposing it into a different key. When Paul writes his letter to the Romans in chapter 7, he says what? The things I want to do, I don't do. But the very things I don't want to do, I end up doing. That's what it's like with forgetting. The things I want to forget, I'm always remembering. But the things I desperately need to remember, I'm always forgetting. Hello, can I get a witness from the AARP anyway that's in the room? So here's the reality. I make a bad decision here, a dreadful decision, an awful decision here. The decision is made, the action is taken, it's done, is it? No, because what happens is I take all of these steps and I keep taking these steps here. And the action is in the past, 
but there's something that's lingering in the present, and it's called shame. You see, there's a fundamental difference between guilt and shame. Guilt isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's evidence that you have a conscience. Guilt is what the Holy Spirit produces in us through a redeemed conscience. Guilt is that thing that the Holy Spirit works with to bring about repentance, a change of mind and life. Guilt is that moral awareness that this is not as it should be. Now, guilt can be out of hand. And when guilt gets out of hand, shame is born. You see, guilt is a matter of what you've done. Shame is when you're convinced that wrong is who you are. Guilt is what we feel when we've done something wrong. Shame is what we feel when we believe that we are wrong. My question this morning to us is, could this promise of forgetting the troubles, could this promise of moving beyond the former things be relevant to our sense of shame? You see, we often try to manufacture some personal, personal amnesia. You have that, it's like a stone in your shoe. You have that constant awareness in the back of your mind of your past, of the thing you don't want to talk about to anybody, the cliche being the skeleton in your closet. If you have a skeleton in your closet this morning, you might relate to this. When anything in your life goes wrong, you immediately wonder, oh, this is what I'm getting for that. Is that too real? My guess is that pretty much if we could have an extra seat for every person in the room, it could be filled by at least one of the skeletons that each person in the room has. Right? And that skeleton is a very faithful friend. Because 20 years on, when you lose your job, 20 years on, when your child doesn't really want to talk to you, 20 years on, when life is not going the way you think, you, you've got the skeleton saying, you know, if I wasn't here, you probably wouldn't be dealing with this. So what do we do? We try to manufacture personal amnesia. We try to forget and move past. And how do we do it? Busyness. Productivity. Being workaholics. Maybe we take the pleasure path, indulge ourselves, alcohol, drugs, shopping, anything that has an anonymous next to it, right? Perhaps we get more creative and psychological and we have new narratives and new stories that we tell ourselves to try and reframe the path. We basically gaslight ourselves into trying to convince ourselves we really weren't that bad. We really didn't do a bad thing. How is that working for any of us? Where does the busyness get us other than exhaustion? Where does hedonism get us other than deep brokenness, physically, emotionally, socially? And the lying to ourselves, the gaslighting ourselves, the making up new stories about our past, we just end up splitting our soul, dividing our soul like a horcrux from Harry Potter. 
there's the part of you that's real over here, and then there's the part of you that you've made up that you carry around with you. And here's the thing that the Holy Spirit brought to my attention. He said, Mark, there are people today, Mark, there are people today who don't just carry shame in relation to their past. They don't just struggle with forgetting the bad things. They struggle to move on from the good things. It's called nostalgia. You see, what I said earlier about what you bring to the text, 15-year-olds that want to get driver's licenses, right? There are those of us that when the word of the Lord comes to us and tells us to act or tells us that he's going to act, we're not thrilled about it because God's action displaces what we think is good. We fear that our best days are behind us. We fear that if we step into God's present, we're going to fail. We fear change. Why? Because change often implies a loss of control. We love the status quo. Listen, if we're miserable, we don't love the status quo. But if we're middle class comfortable, it can be quite appealing. I have very good news for you this morning and very unsettling news for you this morning. God is not intimidated by your shame. But he is not limited by your nostalgia either. I'm going to say that again because I want you to, I want that to sit with you. God is not intimidated by the shame that you carry from the guilt of your past. He's not intimidated by that. When Jesus went to the cross, let's even say when Jesus went to Gethsemane before he got to the cross, he drank the cup of shame to the bottom. But here's the thing. God is not going to be limited to his own goodness in your past. God is not going to be limited to his own goodness in your past. When we say God is good, we reflect and we look back and we should. And that should provoke gratitude and thanksgiving. But looking back is not the bar. It's not the standard or the limit as to what God's goodness is. It's the beginning. I thought I was preaching real good right there. God's goodness in your past is not the bar for his goodness. It's the beginning of his goodness. He's not looking to say, I can repeat what I did in the past. He's saying, I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart. He's saying, you think you know, but you have no idea. That's what he's saying. Don't settle for good when you could have God. What does he say? Oh, I like this. I, gotta, I, I have to look at this because this verse just dropped into my Bible. And I was like, dang, Holy Ghost for the conviction. John, not John, that was funny. Jeremiah 3.16. Listen to this. It shall be in those days... When you become numerous and are fruitful in the land, everybody, sounds good, right? Big numbers, productivity, abundance, all right. When you become fruitful in the land, declares the Lord, they will no longer say, 
the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Stop here for a second with me. How do you think the Ark of the Covenant is a wonderful thing? I mean, a great movie came out of it at the very least, right? This is an, um, the Ark of the Covenant is where the mercy seat is. It's the place where the presence of God is manifest. God is saying, that good thing? A day is coming when nobody's going to even bring it up. Keep reading. It will not even come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor miss it. God is saying, I want to do something new that is going to displace the old. That includes the bad and the good. I'm going to displace your shame, and I'm going to displace the stuff that you thought was great. I'm changing the bar. What does God say? He says this. In verse, let me, let me find the, the verse that I want to get into here. Mm. Let's just stay at that first verse there. 17, Isaiah 65. Behold, I create. Now, there's a lot of, this is when things get hairy, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't draw your attention to it. Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and new earth. This is a very technical passage. The Bible, this, this book of the Bible was written in what language? $100 if you get it right. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't, no, I have, no, I have nothing for you. It was written in the language of Hebrew. So God did not say the words, literally, I create. He said, bara, that's it. <laughs> so everybody's like, okay, what do we do with this? Scholars say there's at least two ways we can approach this. Number one, and I think both of them are beautiful. God says, I am creating. Let's stop here for a moment. You can look around in the formlessness of void of your life. You can look around in the darkness of your life. And God's got news for you. He's at work. He says, behold, take a look at something you didn't think was there. I am creating. I am continuously active. Here's the thing about God. He does his best work in the dark. Every day of creation was evening and morning. God doesn't wake up with the sun. God wakes up when the sun goes down and says, let's get going. When you lack clarity, when you lack vision, when you lack a sense of clear vision and purpose in your life, that's when God's most prone to be active in your life, specifically in terms of his creative power. God's walking into your darkness and saying, behold, I am creating. He's going into the life that says, I don't even know what I'm going to do next year and says, guess what? I'm already working. Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is describing the culmination of human history. Most of this book is very difficult for contemporary Western people to read. But in Revelation 21, at the first verse, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. How do you think that sounds a little like Isaiah 65? I saw new heavens and a new earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now jump to verse 4. Somebody get ready. Just give me even a little amen here. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The former things. Look at verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, there it is, Behold, I am making. Shouldn't he have said, I made? It's the back of the book. What does he say? I am making all things new. Your bad stuff, your good stuff, your shameful stuff, your nostalgic stuff, I'm making it all new. But ah, I create also means I am about to create. Rather than continuity, this is talking about imminence. This is talking about the immediacy. This is talking about anticipation. I think God's people need to be people of expectation. In two weeks, we're about to go into a season of Advent which is a future-looking people. It's a time when people remind themselves, if you thought this was all there is, there's more coming. I am about to create. Turn with me over to John's Gospel, the very first chapter of John's Gospel. We have this incredible prologue to the Gospel, which begins with the same language we find in Genesis 1. Very intentional on the part of the gospel writer. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not control it. Why does John say in the beginning when Genesis says in the beginning? Because this is the fulfillment of the beginning and what you see in Genesis 1 is about to be fulfilled and manifest in the word revealed in John 1. What are we getting at here? We serve a God who is both creating and about to create. There's two in the beginnings. You say, you were talking out of both sides of your mouth. You were doing so well, and now it makes no sense. That's the point. I'm, I'm convinced if we're not sincerely and honestly talking about God, we can be simple. But the moment we try to get down and do honest business with God, it's going to get paradoxical at some point. If you're not talking out of both sides of your mouth, you're not doing it right. Why? Because we're finite creatures engaging the infinite one. Because we're people living in time, trying to understand a God who contains time. From our perspective, God is about to create. From God's perspective, he is creating. Both are true. And we need to cultivate trust that God is acting even now. 
And at the same time, we have to cultivate hope that we will see him create something. Trust that God is active now and hope that God's activity is going to be revealed. Somebody shout, trust, Trust. hope. Hope. We need them both. These realities, God's creating work, are absolutely essential to the forgetting process. Why? Because of what I said before. If you ever want to remember something, try to forget it. We can't do it. Forgetting is not something you can muster up. If I gave you five seconds, could you think of something bad you've done in your past? Three seconds? Seriously, right? If I said, forget it now, did it work? No. If I gave you a technique and close your eyes and think about rainbows, did it work? No, no. Here's the thing. Your shame cannot be forgotten apart from God's creative work. What does that mean? It's grace. It's grace. And we need to be real specific about grace. Grace is gift. More specifically, grace is God giving you the part of him, his very self that we need to do what we can't do apart from his very self. Grace is not a commodity. Grace is a portion of God. For by grace you've been... It's God giving you God. Forgetting, holy, redemptive, wonderful forgetting is grace. It's God doing something to you, for you, through you, in you. Not us saying, oh yeah, I'm forgiven. I have to remember to forget this. We want to eliminate our past, but God wants to transform it. What did you walk into this room with this morning? That you've been busy trying to ignore. You've been trying to pleasure it to death. What did you bring in your baggage this morning that you've been lying to yourself about? Oh, it really wasn't that bad. It really wasn't my fault. You know, if so-and-so hadn't been in my life, I wouldn't have done blah, blah, blah. You bring it in and find ways to try and make it better. God wants to not make it better. He wants to change it into an altogether different thing. The 4th century theologian and church father, Jerome, speaking on Isaiah 65, this is what he said. They will forget the former evils, not by having their memories destroyed, but by receiving an inheritance of goods. I'm going to read that again. They will forget the former evils. How many people want to forget stuff this morning? How many of you want to be free from shame, free from nostalgia, free from trying to hold on to stuff for fear of the future? You want to walk in that sort of freedom. Well, here's the thing. We can forget the former evils not by having our memories destroyed, but by God's creative act, by God giving us an inheritance. He goes on to say, new creation is not an annihilation, 
but a transformation for the better. All this, here's, here, this is the important point. The stuff that brought you shame is not going away. It's being transformed into a story you want to share. The very thing that has kept your mouth shut is going to be a river of life trying to get out of you, bubbling up out of you. The very thing, even the good stuff, that you were always talking about it in the context of the past, in the good old days. The good old days are suddenly going to be a way for you to say how God exceeded expectations. The good old days are going to be the way for you to say, I had no idea just how good he was until he did that. We don't do anything to forget. We receive forgetfulness as a gift, as a grace, which overflows from God's creative act. And holy forgetting can begin this morning. Remember, I am creating. It can begin now in Jesus. It'll be fulfilled when he comes. The, the very end of the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, the 20th verse, that come Lord Jesus, that cry never goes away. Never goes away. And I close with this. There's a, a phrase here in the 22nd verse of Isaiah 65 in the text that we read, and it says this, for as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. We can read that at face value and just say people are going to live a long time. But the church fathers don't like that reading of the text. They see a lot of deep symbolism in this text, and part of the reason is because of the last verse. The wolf and the lamb are grazing together, right? The lion is eating the straw from the cattle. But then look at the third phrase. The dust will be the serpent's food. Where does that come from? The dust being the serpent's food. Isn't that, huh? There's a place called the Garden of Eden. And there was an incident involving a snake whom God cursed and said, Henceforth shall you eat the dust. So even in the age to come, the curse on the serpent is still in effect. In other words, he doesn't have an appetite for you. But the church fathers say clearly the prophet ends up in Eden over here. Seventy Jewish scholars came together to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, which is a Greek word for 70. In the Septuagint version of Isaiah 65, it says this. For the days, for as it was in the days of the tree of life, so will it be in the days of my people. As it was in the days of the tree of life, so will it be. 
The days of the tree of life are the days of Eden. The days of the tree of life are when people had access to immortality. Why? Because a Jewish rabbi walked the earth and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And at the end of his life, he hung on a tree so we could all reach up and eat of its fruit which we're about to do at this table. And friends, he is creating. He is about to create as you come. As it was in the days of the tree of life, so it will be in the days of my people. The tree of life is the cross. It never goes away. In Revelation 22, we read about a river coming out of the throne room. And what does it say? On both sides of it and in the center is what? The tree of life. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. He will heal your shame. And he will deliver you from inordinate attachments to the good of your past. So that you can grab onto and receive the greater good of God's future. Let me pray for you this morning. I have a feeling that there's a couple people this morning who really, really felt that word shame when I said it. And I really want to pray for you. I don't want you to leave here with anything less than a touch of hope in your heart that forgetting is not only possible, forgetfulness is coming. That shame is going to be transformed for the better. And if that clicked with you, if you just want to raise your hand, you don't have to do anything. I just want to pray for you. That's all. Just right where you are. If you just raise your hand, I see hands popping up all over the place. Father, you see every person, and maybe even the person who didn't feel like they could raise their hand, but you see those of us that are reaching out to you. And I pray right now. Holy Spirit, As only you can, help them feel your presence right now. I'm asking you to do something in their heart and in their mind that would quicken them to the fact that you're active, you're present, you're with them. This is, a, God, I'm asking in this moment, do something subtle but miraculous and mystical in their heart. Give them something. Give them something over the course of this day that lets them know forgetting is coming. And God, I pray for all of us that struggle to let go of the goodness of the past. I pray that we would have a fresh excitement and anticipation for what you're yet to do. I pray, Holy Ghost, that you would just move over the face of those waters, move over those emotions this morning, and awaken us, awaken us to the possibilities of God's future, which are coming to us. 
in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? At this time, we're going to join our hearts and our minds with brothers and sisters around the world and through the centuries to confess with a full heart the faith that saves us. Would you join me? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now we come to the table of the Lord together. I think we're all convinced, hopefully at this point, that God is in our midst. Amen? Amen. But now is a special opportunity to enter into the Holy of Holies, encounter Him by faith at this table. And so we say, the Lord is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death and the grave, and by his glorious resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. Therefore, we praise you. Joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn and proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. On the night that he was handed over to death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me.
And after supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's say that again. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension, we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. And sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now as our Christ, Savior has, our Christ, Christ our Savior has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These are the gifts of God, the graces of God, for the people of God. It is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.